I wouldn't trust uh, Donald Trump to run the kitchen in a Wendy's, uh, much less uh, uh, our nuclear arsenal, which is the uh, largest and most capable nuclear force in the world. That's John Noonan. He's a former national security advisor to Jeb Bush, a former Air Force officer. And he's also written recently about his deep hesitations in trusting Donald Trump with the nation's nuclear weapons. And I shouldn't I don't want to be insulting to people who work at Wendy's. I'm sure they are far better people than Donald Trump is. In recent weeks, many top Republican figures have said publicly they just can't vote for Trump. Like Eric Edelman, who served as an ambassador and an advisor to George W. Bush's administration. If you go to work in the Trump administration, you're going to be tarred by every everything he ever says or does in office. And I think a lot of people are agonizing over what the reputational consequences for them of that might be. While the Republican nominee is really unpopular, this is pretty unusual. It's unusual for prominent figures in one of the major parties to come out, you know, so strongly against their own nominee. This is No One Knows Anything, the politics podcast from BuzzFeed News. I'm Rosie Gray. And I'm Tarini Party. We're political reporters for BuzzFeed covering the campaign. And we'll be two of your guides on this podcast between now and Election Day. It's one thing not to vote for Trump, but what's making these former Republican officials take such a strong public stand against him? This week, we talked to National Security Advisors Eric Edelman and John Noonan, who have both publicly come out against Donald Trump for his national security views. You'll also hear from an Iraq war veteran and anti-war activist who won't be voting for either major party candidate this year. So one thing that's been really remarkable about, you know, the Trump campaign is the extent to which he's really sort of broken with what other modern Republican presidential candidates have done in terms of foreign policy. I mean, obviously, the sort of like archetypical, you know, Republican president when it comes to foreign policy of the last 15 years, or well, the only Republican president in the last 15 (laughs) years, George W. Bush uh, is associated with, you know, the so-called neoconservative wing of the party that advocated for like a really muscular approach to the world, nation building, or, you know, the sort of practice of, uh, you know, democracy promotion around the world. And obviously, they're also associated with the Iraq war. And even the last Republican presidential nominee, Mitt Romney, had a much more sort of like hawkish view of uh, of the United States' role in the world and the role that we play in certain, you know, international alliances that we have and a much sort of more traditional view of like who our allies and who our enemies are. And, you know, then you've got Donald Trump coming in here saying he'd like to get along much better with Russia, that he doesn't think Russia was in Ukraine, even though they annexed Crimea. And the thing that he really has cared about is is ISIS. And he talks about ISIS all the time and how he's going to bomb the shit out of them. ISIS is making a tremendous amount of money because they have certain oil camps, right? They have certain areas of oil that they took away. They have some in Syria, some in Iraq. I would bomb the shit out of them. I would just bomb those suckers. And that's right. I'd blow up the pipes. I'd blow up the refi- I'd blow up every single inch. There would be nothing left. And you know what? You'll get Exxon to come in there in two months. You ever see these guys, how good they are, the great oil companies? They'll rebuild that sucker brand new. It'll be beautiful. And I'd ring it, and I'd take the oil. But other than that, he's sort of espousing this America first uh, worldview that's 
you know, kind of harkens back to like the sort of isolationist movement of the 1930s. And so it's like, you know, coming from the party's nominee is like a pretty big break with how things have gone in Republican presidential politics for the last 20 years. It is now time for a new approach. Our current strategy of nation building and regime change is a proven absolute failure. We have created the vacuums that allow terrorism to grow and thrive. I was an opponent of the Iraq war from the beginning. Uh, which, as BuzzFeed has reported repeatedly, is completely inaccurate. Trump did support the Iraq war. Um, and a lot of the sort of the older, the veteran Republicans who have been involved in national security in the past, this has been an interesting election cycle for them. Uh, this is very different from everything that they've believed uh, in the last few years. So they're still sort of, you know, trying to figure out how to deal with this. And in the speech, uh, so Trump gave a big foreign policy speech uh, on Monday this week. And in that, he kind of talked about everything he's been bringing up this election cycle so far. Obviously, uh, you know, he mentioned uh, keeping Muslims out of uh, the United States, although he said that he's not going to detail that policy proposal until after the election. Well, now he wants an ideological test, basically, where like you have to say that, that you don't hate America and that you're for women's rights and gay rights, and then you'll get let in, I guess. In the Cold War... We had an ideological screening test. The time is overdue to develop a new screening test for the threats we face today. I call it extreme vetting. I call it extreme, extreme vetting. Our country has enough problems. We don't need more. And these are problems like we've never had before. So we can't talk about Trump's foreign policy without talking about Russia. There's been new revelations this week about Trump's top campaign staffer, Paul Manafort, working for pro-Putin politicians in Ukraine. This, of course, comes after we've seen over the past few months uh, that Trump had tried to show this sort of cozy relationship with Putin. His campaign has sort of started to back off from that a little bit now, Um, but what do you think, Rosie, of these new revelations? I mean, well, they're really interesting because, you know, it, it does show, you know, how Manafort had steered money towards two lobbying firms in D.C., kind of like on behalf of this pro-Russian Ukrainian contingent. And that, you know, he was doing sort of like undisclosed foreign lobbying for, you know, pro-Putin forces in Ukraine. And it really does show like what a departure, you know, Trump's stance towards Russia is from, you know, other Republicans. If you'll remember back in 2012, Mitt Romney said that Russia was our, num- our quote, number one geopolitical foe. And he's kind of been vindicated now. <laughs> yeah. And at the time, people sort of mocked him for it. But, um, but you know, Trump's stance towards Putin is sort of, you know, it's kind of the stance that he often has towards authoritarian figures, which is like, oh, he's very strong. He's very strong. He's running this country, and at least he's a leader, you know, unlike what we have in this country. But again, he kills journalists that don't agree with him. Well, I think uh, our country does plenty of killing also, Joe. So, you know. I do think that they've tried to kind of tone this down, but I don't think it's been enough to sort of tamp down the impression that he, you know, 
feels a certain affinity for Putin, at least. Yeah, he I mean, we've we've heard in the past few years, conservatives talk about, you know, that that image of Putin with his shirt off, you know, riding a horse or something and how that embodies Russian strength. <laughs> yeah, kind of, uh, kind of goes along with uh, with Trump and always talking about you know the the strength and and author- authoritarian uh, figures. But I but all of this kind of adds up to this impossible situation for these very you know serious people who have worked in Republican foreign policy for a long time. Who uh, this is just like crazy town to them. So let's talk about what these national security advisors would usually be doing this time of year. Well, usually these national security advisors would be working for their party's nominee. They would be working for the presidential campaign, advising the nominee on foreign policy matters, national security issues. But this time around, we're seeing something different. There was a letter last this month uh, that about 50 Republican national security officials signed uh, that basically expressed a lot of reservations against Trump. They not only have uh, issues with his policy positions, but they are unsure whether he is qualified to be commander in chief. One of the people who signed that letter was Ambassador Eric Edelman. Well, actually, there have been three letters from senior Republican national security officials. Well, two from Republicans and one that's bipartisan uh, going back to last March. Ambassador Edelman is a former U.S. ambassador to Finland and to Turkey and also a former national security advisor to Dick Cheney. Uh, The March letter had about 120 Republicans on it. I signed that letter. Uh, The bipartisan letter was in late July, uh, and I signed that letter. And when I was asked by the author of the uh, letter of 50, John Bellinger, the former uh, legal advisor in the State Department, I signed that too. And the reason I signed it is that uh, Mr. Trump, during the course of this campaign, has repeatedly shown that he lacks the basic knowledge and the temperament and disposition to do the job of the president, as I've seen multiple presidents perform that job. You know, based on what we've been seeing in the past few months, there's been kind of a, I wouldn't necessarily use the word migration, but there's been a steady trickle of Republicans who have been endorsing Hillary Clinton, particularly particularly Republicans coming from uh, sort of the national security sphere. And, you know, definitely some notable names from the Bush years, Robert Kagan, for example, do you think that there is there is going to be kind of a movement of more hawkish Republicans finding actually more of a home in the Democratic Party uh, based on the issues that are most important to them? Uh, I, I don't see that, Rosie. I mean, um, I myself uh, have not endorsed Secretary Clinton uh, and I don't intend to. I think uh, the letter of, of 50 that you cited at the outset uh, expresses grave reservations a- about her. I, I have grave reservations. Uh, I don't doubt, as you pointed out, many uh, folks, uh, not just Bob Kagan, but others have, have endorsed Secretary Clinton in this go-round. Uh, but I'm pretty sure, and I hope, it'll be a temporary phenomenon. So basically, I mean, you know, you're really between a rock and a hard place. I mean, you've found yourself in a situation where neither uh, of the major party presidential candidates are, are acceptable to you. Well, that's correct. Right. So so what are you going to what are you going to do in that voting booth in November? You know, I've been asked that a lot. And I do want to remind people that how one votes in this country still is, uh, you know, we still have a secret ballot. <laughs> of course. Um, but, but having said that, um, you know, I haven't quite decided what I'm going to do yet. Uh, I might not vote at all for president and just 
uh, vote uh, you know, to support Republican candidates down ballot. Um, I might vote for uh, the Libertarian candidate um, as a protest vote. I might write in uh, or vote for Evan McMullen if he gets on the ballot in Virginia where I vote. Um, and I haven't ruled out voting for, for Secretary Clinton, but I, it, it would be hard for me to imagine that given all the things I've said already. And McMullen is the, the new independent candidate uh, that's come in in, the, in this past week or so. Former congressional, sta- Republican congressional staffer, yes. You know, one of the current concerns that I hear uh, people in the foreign policy world bring up a lot regarding Trump is that he doesn't have a very sort of high quality of um, – of advising, basically, that he's not getting a lot of uh, really good advice on national security and foreign policy, which is something that normally, you know, candidates at, at that level would be getting. I mean, when you're talking to, you know, your peers in this world, uh, do you know anyone who thinks that they'd be, you know, willing to advise him to work with him on stuff? Or, or is, is the sense more sort of universally more in your camp? Uh, most of the uh, Republican officials that I've worked with and I've been talking to during this cycle, I think, are pretty adamant. As, as I said, the 120 who signed the letter in March said they would not work in a Trump administration. I think there are others who did not sign the letter for one reason or another who are at least open uh, to the possibility. And, you know, I would concede that if, you know, the if he's elected president and the president of the United States or his senior appointees reach out to you and say, you know, are you willing to serve the country? It's a, you know, it's an awfully big step to say, no, you wouldn't uh, as a patriot. On the other hand, if you go to work in the Trump administration, you're going to be tarred by every, everything he ever says or does in office. And I think a lot of people are agonizing over what the reputational consequences for them of that might be. If he, you know, if he became the president what would you do about, uh, you know, in, in terms of in terms of your party affiliation? Would you feel comfortable, you know, remaining a Republican? Uh, you know, what would what would what would you do about that? Uh, you know, I'll burn that bridge when I get to it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How concerned are you, by the way, about um, you know some of these sort of troubling connections uh, that that the Trump campaign seems to have to Russia? For example, Paul Manafort's you know, work for Yanukovych and, and that It's sort of extremely thing. troubling. And it's not just Manafort. It's Mike Flynn. It's uh, Carter Page. Uh, there seems to be a web of connections linking the Trump campaign with circles around President Putin and other Russian oligarchs. Uh, and it's extremely troubling. And you see it manifest itself in things like the Youngstown speech, where he calls for uh, an alliance with Russia against ISIL, which I think is just foolishness. They, too, have much at stake in the outcome in Syria and have had their own battles with Islamic terrorism just as bad as ours. They have a big, big problem in Russia with ISIS. Or when he asks Russia to hack uh, email accounts <laughs> in, in press right. conferences. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that, that obviously was, uh, you know, something I thought was totally beyond the pale. As are the, you know, as are the calls to, you know, lock up you know, his opponents. I mean, I, I was ambassador to a country where political opponents are now, in fact, being locked up. In Turkey. And that would be that would be Turkey and for those of us, for, for those of you listening. In a democracy, we don't lock up our, uh, you know, political opponents. They're not our enemies. They're opponents. And, and I find that part of this campaign to be particularly troubling and distasteful.
So Ambassador Edelman is one of those Republicans who hasn't decided how he's going to vote because of national security in particular. Now, when we talk about national security, there's a lot of things that sort of come into the fold. But there's one example that comes up every time. And that example would be our nuclear weapons arsenal and whether or not the person running for president is qualified to be in charge of the launch codes. Here to talk about why this issue matters so much this year is John Noonan. John is a former national security advisor of the Jeb Bush campaign, a former Air Force officer. And he recently expressed on Twitter at length some very uh, strong views about Donald Trump's fitness to be in charge of the nation's nuclear arsenal. John, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. So I wanted to start off by talking a little bit about some of your concerns about Donald Trump being in charge of the nuclear arsenal. Well, look, I I wouldn't trust uh, Donald Trump to run the kitchen in a Wendy's. Uh, much less uh, uh, our nuclear arsenal, which is the uh, largest and most capable nuclear force in the world. And I shouldn't I, I don't want to be insulting to people who work at Wendy's. I'm sure they are far better people than Donald Trump is. But you get the point. He, he is unfit to be commander in chief. He doesn't have the mental stability. He doesn't have the fitness, doesn't have the knowledge, doesn't have the temperament. He doesn't have any of those qualities. In fact, he has the opposite of the qualities that we need. And traditionally, we've sought. And in, in an American president. So explain to us a little bit what an Air Force missileer, which is what you used to do. What is what is that job? What did you do? Sure. Well, a lot of people have forgotten about it because it's people see it as kind of a Cold War mission. It's actually very relevant still today. But uh, for those of you who don't know what the nuclear triad is, we have three legs of, of a stool, so to speak. Uh, there's bombers, there's submarines, and then there's long range uh, nuclear missiles. The missiles are buried all over the upper Midwest, uh, places like North Dakota, Wyoming, and Montana. And um, a missileer's job is to go out. Sometimes it's a two-hour drive to get out to the the missile field, as we call it. Uh, take an elevator, hundred to two hundred feet underground, and pull alert as the this is the missileer nomenclature for it. Pull a twenty-four hour shift uh, in a hardened steel cocoon. Uh, that's just jam-packed with communications equipment and uh, command and control equipment that monitor the status of the missiles. And if you get the if you get the order, we've never gotten it, thank God. Uh, you have to be ready to go in a matter of seconds. So, could the president unilaterally give that order? Yes. Now, there there are some the the, the chain of command between somebody like me who is out there as a captain in the Air Force uh, leading a missile crew. Uh, and the president's very thin. But there are some cogs, there are some stops uh, in between the president and, and the missile force, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, and then the uh, commander of U.S. Strategic Command. So I know that there's a lot of concern. I share it, too, about the idea of here's Donald Trump with no real check on this authority. And that was part of what I was sounding off on on Twitter. But uh, fortunately, we have an extremely professional military that understands the difference between a lawful order and an unlawful order and could pe- could potentially disrupt uh, an unlawful order if it came down to the use of nuclear weapons. So you could refuse? Sure. Yeah. And uh, w- if if the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, the commander of U.S. DRACOM, doesn't play ball, then Trump has no way to get that order out without uh, firing them and uh, and replacing them, which would take time. And all kinds of things can happen um, in the amount of time it would take to replace your your most Mm -hmm. senior military leaders. 
So do you trust Hillary Clinton with the nuclear arsenal? Yes. Um, I don't trust Hillary Clinton on a lot of things. Uh, I am on the other side of her on just about every single policy issue. But I don't think she's going to lob a nuke off at Liechtenstein because they <laughs> tweeted something mean at, at her. Like she does have she does have a, a fundamental rationality. John, something that you brought up uh, when you were tweeting about this is the idea that Donald Trump would represent kind of a radical break with nuclear policy of the last, you know, since the Cold War, basically, which is the idea that we are actually not supposed to use nuclear weapons. And in fact, the idea of having them is to not use them. Sure. So, uh, look, I, I'm uh, I, I get in I get into it with my liberal friends on this because I, I really think that. Uh, the U.S. nuclear forces have done far more to keep the peace between nations than the Peace Corps or, you know, any NGO. Well, we'll disagree on it. But um, fundamentally, the idea is deterrence, which is you've got the two biggest kids on the block and they don't mess with each other because neither of them want their nose bloodied. Uh, no country will launch a nuclear attack on another country because the response would be so devastating that would render the... Uh, it would be a Pyrrhic victory if, if any victory at all. It, it just utterly, it'd be utterly pointless. So Donald Trump uh, has said some things during the campaign that give me pause about whether or not he understands that and whether or not he's interested in maintaining that 60-year-old equation that's really kept the peace for, um, for all those years. Uh, his spokesperson on Fox News asked, what good is a nuclear triad if you can't use it, uh, which is quite possibly the stupidest thing said in the history of presidential campaigns, which puts it in the running for the stupidest thing said in the history of the world. Um, he's, Trump suggested that uh, Japan and South Korea should develop nuclear weapons of their own. That was that would have been incredibly destabilizing because if you start to have countries going off and developing nuclear weapons of their own, I mean, think about what that would do to the security balance in Asia. Um, the Chinese would flip out. The North Koreans would flip out uh, new nuclear powers themselves. Uh, and then there were these unattributed comments in Morning Joe where Joe Scarborough – and this is this is anonymous and unattributed, so take it with a grain of salt. But Joe Scarborough said that a foreign policy expert who was briefing Donald Trump said that in the briefing, Donald Trump three times asked – not once, but three times asked uh, – why can't we use these weapons? Uh, and that's where – that was what kind of like prompted my Twitter response and, and some of these op-eds that I've written is that you are insane. So given all this – um, you wrote a column for National Review, I think it was last week, where you basically argued against the idea of there being a so-called purge after right. the election. Given how fierce your opposition to Trump is and how dangerous you think he is, why not do a purge? Well, look, I, I, I think one of the things that I could have done differently in that column is note that I would love to purge the alt-right, the so-called alt-right from mm -hmm. the party. These are mm -hmm. the white supremacists who have felt comfortable to come out of the woodwork. Um, they were in, they were rightfully in the witness protection program, and I wish they had stayed there. But Trump is emboldened um, an, an element in my party that I thought that we had put to bed, frankly. But with that said, uh, outside of that element, that nasty, ugly element – um, I would like to see uh, unity akin to what we've seen with the Democrats who are able to heal very quickly after uh, Bernie dropped out. Obviously, a lot of very passionate Bernie supporters, um, mostly polls have reflected in the past couple of weeks and mostly gotten by, behind Hillary. Uh, conservatives have lost that. John, looking at the post-2016 Republican world a little bit more, a world where potentially Republicans don't have the Senate or the House – 
you know, national security has always been a big issue for the Republican Party. Does that still continue? Do you think the electorates just changed on on that? Um, and do future candidates, you know, start breaking uh, with the the GOP orthodoxy even more on this sure. issue? Sure, uh, yeah, this has long been our since Reagan at least. It's been our strength. Uh, really, I mean, it was what carried Bush over Kerry in 2004. It's one of the best uh, chits we've got in our, in our deck. You know, it does make me a little nervous that when you watch the Democratic convention and, you know, here I am as a Republican identifying more with, uh, mm-hmm. with the Democrats yeah. on these issues than I did watching the Republican convention. It was a little disconcerting. I mean, they really put together a hell of a program with the Khan family and with General Allen and with all the veterans and military leaders they had on the stage. And they had Florent Groberg, who's our newest Medal of Honor recipient, all speaking. I mean, it looked like a Republican convention. Right. My question is, what happens to the center? Both sides, both left and right, um, have elements that are rising. I think it'd be isolationism on the Republican side and then this kind of traditional anti-institutionalism on the Democratic side who are uh, against that and would like to see America um retreat back to behind the Atlantic and Pacific Ocean, which has traditionally been our foreign policy. I think that'd be a huge mistake. We've we've been able to kind of hold it together in the center. Um, But we'll see. It's going to be a very interesting couple of years. Yeah. All right. Well, on that note, uh, John Noonan is a former national security advisor for both Jeb Bush and Mitt Romney. uh, And he's also a former Air Force officer. John, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So Noonan as a Republican, said he found himself relating to the Democratic National Convention more so than the Republican Convention uh, based on the the national security talk that he saw at the Democratic Convention. So one thing that was interesting about the Democratic National Convention is that they sort of tried to co-opt how the Republicans have always been on national security, really focused on it, really um, tried to project this sort of strong, muscular image. I've laid out my strategy for defeating ISIS. We will strike their sanctuaries from the air and support local forces taking them out on the ground. We will surge our intelligence so we detect and prevent attacks before they happen. And it's one thing that they've done that has sort of, you know, made certain independents and Republicans maybe more comfortable with Hillary Clinton, but there's downsides to it. And one of the downsides is that it's kind of alienated liberal voters who were already suspicious of Hillary, thinking that, you know, she was very hawkish. We actually talked to one of them. His name is Will Hopkins. He's the director of an anti-war group called New Hampshire Peace Action. And he's also an Iraq war veteran. I was against going into Iraq when we went in. So I I knew what I was doing was wrong. Uh, But when you're enlisted, if you refuse orders to deploy to a war zone, you go to jail. And at that point, folks were spending about 18 months uh, in prison and uh, living with a felony conviction on their record, uh, being dishonorably discharged. uh, And that prospect to me was scarier than uh, disobeying uh, my conscience and fighting in a war that I uh, disagreed with morally. So Hopkins is a progressive. He's volunteered for Democratic campaigns at the state level. And in 2008, he voted for Obama. He's not going to vote for Donald Trump. And he won't vote for Hillary Clinton either. For me, I, I spent a year in Iraq... Um, and and I, I carry the, the, the emotional and, and mental scars of that 
I can't vote for somebody who, uh, you know, was was one of the leading senators uh, on the Democratic side pushing for the War Powers Act. So uh, for me, there beyond that, there are a number of reasons why I don't feel like I can I can vote for Hillary Clinton. Um, and I certainly would never vote for Donald Trump. I think he's a bigot. I think he's unstable. Um, so I'll be voting for Jill Stein, I suspect. So protest votes do still matter, you think? I, I believe they do. Absolutely. Um and that, you know, I, I'm not saying that my decision is purely rational. Um, I know that a lot of the reason I am voting uh, for Jill Stein this cycle is emotional. Um, and I realize that uh, having someone who uh, is at least uh, mentally and emotionally stable, which I think could be said about Hillary Clinton, is, you know, would be a valuable thing. There are other issues I care about. I'm not a pure foreign policy voter. And certainly on most of those issues, Hillary Clinton uh, is some degree better than Donald Trump. Uh, but in this case, uh, as much as anything else, I just can't do it. I just can't vote for someone who is the top recipient of defendants industry dollars. Um, I can't vote for somebody who has as poor a record on the issues I care about as uh, candidate Clinton has. So Will talked about this decision he's going to make in November being more of an emotional issue for him rather than a than a rational one. How many of these voters do you think are out there, Rosie? And do you think it could hurt Hillary at all? I mean, it's a really good question. You know, I, I don't know whether to what extent people are actually going to not vote for, you know, Democrats are actually going to not vote for her uh, based on this. But it does. I, I do think that 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 interview really interestingly showed how national security is an issue that really has alienated many liberals from her. Yeah. And it's not just an issue that Republicans are dealing with this time around, but sort of the change in, in tone this cycle is also affecting Democrats and, and, and voters who have you know voted for Democratic candidates on the state or presidential level. So what was really interesting about our talks with Ambassador Edelman and with John Noonan is that traditionally Republicans have thought of national security as a really core issue for them. Uh, and they thought that this year was going to be a national security election. There's a lot of um, dangerous things happening around the world. And there was a thought among many Republicans that it would be really be a winning issue for them this year. Uh, and Trump sort of uh, got in the way of their plans. He's getting in the way of, of their plans. But a lot of the Republicans who are coming out against Trump, you know, aren't necessarily going to be voting for Clinton is also what we learned today. So this kind of brings up the issue of, you know, bipartisan support versus bipartisan opposition. I mean, just because uh, there are a lot of Republicans who are ditching their party's nominee now because of national security, that doesn't mean they're going to be part of some sort of glorious Hillary Clinton bipartisan coalition, you know, based around national security going forward. And especially from the two interviews we did today, um, you can tell that, you know, neither of those guys are ready to actually support uh, to cast their vote for the other party's nominee. So, Rosie, when it comes to Donald Trump making these big foreign policy proposals and Republican national security officials calling him out on them, do we know if these proposals are actually going to have a lasting impact on the Republican Party? Well, Trini, no one knows anything. Um, but, you know, I, I do think that uh, 
we don't really know the answer to that question until this election is over and we see whether or not Trump wins, as unlikely as that might seem right now. It's possible that after this election, if the Republicans lose, there will be sort of, you know, a backlash to Trumpism and some of these uh, more traditional views about national security will become more dominant again. So as of right now, I mean, you know, it's, it's really hard to say, but it's a really interesting shift in direction for the party. It's more of a TBD situation. Yeah. No One Knows Anything is produced by Meg Kramer. With editorial oversight from Catherine Miller and Eleanor Kagan. And production help from Julia Furlan. Our music was composed by Beauty Pill. To follow our coverage through the election, subscribe to No One Knows Anything on iTunes. On Twitter, we're at No One Knows. I'm Tarini Party. And I'm Rosie Gray. And we'll be back soon with more things we don't know. <laughs>